Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. It's just me today. On this episode, I thought I would review the film Equus, since it has to do with psychotherapy. That's Equus, E-Q-U-U-S. Equus is a 1977 British-American drama film directed by Sidney Lumet or Lumet or Lumet or I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sidney Lumet or Lumet also directed 12 Angry Men. He's also famous for directing Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and also The Wiz, which is a strange movie out of nowhere that he directed. If anyone's seen The Wiz, it's the one with Michael Jackson and Diana Ross doing a kind of a funky remake of The Wizard of Oz. He's on down, he's on down the road. Anyway, Peter Schaefer wrote the screenplay, which is also based on his play, um, Equus, which is called Equus. He, it was a play first and then a music and then a, not a musical, but, but a film. Schaefer is also famous for writing the play and screenplay for Amadeus. The film stars Richard Burton, who also starred in the stage production prior to the movie. Burton was in many, many films. If you, if you're older than me, you probably know all about him. And if you're younger than me, you know nothing about him. Burton was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966, which is a film I use in class to demonstrate the systemic nature of marital conflict. It's a very good representation of what a conflictual marriage looks like. Um, I find that uh, students take to it really well. Equus also starts Joan Plowright, who was also in I Love You to Death. She was the mother, which is a movie I love. Uh, I don't know if it's if this is the reason why I love it, but it was um, set in Tacoma, Washington, which is near Seattle. Equus also stars Jenny Agutter or Agutier, or I, I don't know, um, but she played Jessica Six in Logan's Run. And having seen her just now as I was watching Equus, it prompted me to buy a vintage Logan's Run poster for my office at work. Um, I have a bunch of movie posters at work. Um, let's see if I can name them all. Uh, let's see. I have a, and a lot of the posters are these kind of quirky posters that weren't the original movie posters in the United States. I like the the weird ones that come out of other countries. Like I have a Japanese version of the Annie Hall movie poster. Uh, I have Watership Down, Star Wars, Napoleon Dynamite, um, Metropolis, the anime version, not not the not the original version. Spirited Away, um, The Unforgiven, Star Wars, of course, Goodfellas. I, I actually don't have a movie poster of Goodfellas. I have that the painting that Joe Pesci finds in his mom's house, you know, where there's the guy in the boat and the two dogs. I, I just have that, and no one's identified it yet. I'm waiting for someone to walk into my office and say, oh, that, that painting is from Goodfellas, the movie, but no one, no one has because I'm the only nerd that understands these references. I also have uh, posters of uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, uh, Harold and Maude, um, Rushmore, A Clockwork Orange, which is my favorite movie. Someone said that I, I must be sick for liking that movie, and um, perhaps I am, but I, I just, the direction and the writing and the intensity, and of course it's awful what people do to people in that movie. Seven Samurai, Brazil, Crouching Tiger, Time Bandits, I have a lot of movie posters in my office. My office is actually kind of large, and so I have a lot of space to fill. Um, anyway, 
So Equus, the film, was nominated for Academy Awards in the categories of Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, uh, which uh, was Peter Firth, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It also won Golden Globes for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. So given all these accolades, I was surprised I'd never heard about the movie before I randomly saw it on Netflix just recently. Um, It's on instant uh, watch right now or watch instantly or whatever you want to call it. So if you want to pop on the old Netflix and watch it, that would be good. And since some listeners have requested I do more movie analyses, here we are. Um, So before I talk about the movie, let me say a few things. First off, the movie is highly symbolic. I've come to realize that the movie has been analyzed up and down for all of its symbolism. So I won't be providing a literary or dramatic critique. I'm not a scholar in those areas and and would know nothing about that. So I won't talk about that. But I am a therapist and a teacher of therapists. So I will speak on the therapy presented in the film. I suspect this was written as a comment on humanity rather than an accurate portrayal of psychotherapy or mental illness. But since this film presents a good look at one course of therapy, I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the details. Also, you should know I'm going to spoil the movie for you if you haven't seen it. I cannot talk about it without spoiling it. Uh, It's on Netflix Instant Watch, as I said before. So if you want to watch it before I spoil it, do that now and come back to the podcast. All right. The movie begins by showing us that Dr. Dysart, or Dysart, played by Richard Burton, is a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I I assume he's a psychiatrist. He's working at a British inpatient hospital for children and adolescents. They start off the movie by showing the doctor in various different modes of his um, treatment of people. They show the doctor in psychoanalysis with a teen. You know, the patient is on a chaise lounge, lounge and the doctor is sitting behind him out of sight. They show the doctor in group therapy with teens and children. Um, and the doctor is sitting in a dark corner observing the group session. Um, but they also see, uh, show him playing with the kids. Um, they show him performing medical exams. They show him holding a punching bag for a teenager to punch. And he's yelling at him, get out, get out the air. I, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but he's you know encouraging the kid uh, to punch the bag. And the kid is building up to a crescendo and punching this bag, uh, I assume, to get the patient's rage out which was a common practice, I think, back then. A lot of this, I think, might be a window into the way psychiatry was practiced in the late 60s, early early 70s. Um, It's actually an interesting window. If it is accurate in any way, things looked a lot different back then, that's for sure. So then um, after there's this montage of the doctor's various different modes of practice, a woman friend arrives at the hospital to get the doctor to take a new patient. So let's just go to the movie. I'm just going to play the audio from that. My fellow magistrates wanted to send him to prison on the spot. Luckily, I got him remanded for a report. Who's he? A teenager the name Strang. What's he done? Dose some little girl's Pepsi with Spanish fly? What could possibly have thrown your court into such Tory convulsions? He blinded six horses with a metal spike. Blinded? Yes. All at once or over a period? All at once, the night before last. Where? In a stable over at Chalk Ford. He worked there on weekends. What did he say in court? Nothing. He just sang. Sang? Martin, you've simply got to take him here. You think this hospital is suitable? How dangerous is he? No, I mean you, personally. Now, look here, sir. Before you say anything else, I can take no more patients at the moment. I can't even cope with the ones I have. You must. Why? 
because there's no one else within a hundred miles of that desk who can handle him and perhaps understand what this is all about. And the regular hospital will be useless and so will the other doctors here. That's an absolutely unwarrantable statement. Oh, it's true. They'll be very cool and professional and underneath they'll be disgusted and immovably English, just like my court. Well, what am I, Polynesian? Please, Martin. This is the last favour I'll ever ask of you. No, it's not. No, it's not. And he's obviously abominable. I know that already. Why me? Why, Esther? Because there's something extraordinary about him. In what way? Terrible, if you like. I don't quite know what I'm saying. I just knew I had to come here. Take him, Martin. It's very important. All right, let me chime in here for a second. Um, in terms of accuracy, I would say this scene could have taken place in reality. I, I have had many conversations like this. Um, my practice is often full, and sometimes referrers will try to get me to take a particular client, even though I'm saying I don't have any free time, I don't have any available you know, time to see anyone else. I can remember one woman whom I like a lot. She was a referrer and she knew that if she spoke about the client long enough to me, I would feel fond of them, even though I had never met them and would therefore take the case in spite of my wish for free time. That's kind of what this woman was doing to the doctor. All right. So Alan arrives, um, at the, at the hospital, the Alan, who is the patient who gouged the horse's eyes out. He arrives at the hospital. He's 17. Um, and in his first session with a doctor, he refuses to talk. He only sings. So let's just go to that. For today, I just want a few simple facts. Uh, is, is this your full name? Alan Strang? And you're 17, is that right? 17? You work in an electrical shop during the week. Electrical and kitchenware. Double your pleasure, double your fun with double good, double good, double mint gum. Now, let's see, you live with your parents and your father's a printer. What sort of things does he print? Double your pleasure, double your fun with double good, double good, double mint gum. I mean, does he do leaflets, calendars, things like that? Try the taste of martini, the most beautiful drink in the world. It's the bright one, the right one, that's martini. Look, I wish you'd sit down if you're going to sing. Don't you think you'd be more comfortable? There's only one tea in Typhoo, in packets and in tea bags too. Anyway, you make it, you'll know that it's true. There's only one tea in Typhoo. Well, that's a good song. I like that better than the other two. Sing that one again. Double your pleasure, double your fun with double good, double good. Now listen, this is not a loony bin. It's not a prison. If you behave yourself, you'll have a reasonably all right time. If you don't, you'll be packed off to a mental hospital and you'll find things much more restricted. So it's up to you. You'll be seeing me every day. Our session will last exactly 45 minutes and I expect you to be absolutely on time. All right? By the way... Which of your parents is it who won't allow you to watch television? Mother? Father? Or is it both? Okay, so as we can see, the doctor is not phased by the patient's odd singing. This is probably a good call by the therapist. Um, it's best to not let resistance get under your skin when a client is being oppositional like this. It's, it's not a good idea to get into a power struggle with the client who is not cooperating. Plus, some clients need to act this way at first 
um, in order to cope with the anxiety. I, I think therapists, including me, I, I think we all, ther- I think all me included, I think we therapists forget how scary therapy actually is for people that aren't used to it or, or don't know the therapist. I've seen adults shaking in fear as they enter my office. Actually, um, not only uh, clients, but I also see students are sometimes afraid of me as well. Uh, a student last quarter told me she was terrified to take a class with me because she heard I was psychodynamically oriented. I guess she thought I was going to dig up things that she didn't want dug up. Um, she did end up taking my class, and she discovered I wasn't all that bad. At least that's what she said to me anyway. She said um, she she quite enjoyed working with me, um, and I really enjoyed working with her. She was fantastic therapist and but but anyway i'm getting off track anyway so anyway at the end of the clip there the the doctor asks him which parent won't allow him to watch television i guess we're supposed to believe that the doctor has deduced this from his singing of commercials you know that the the doctor's watching him sing these commercials and then he deduces that uh, one or both of his parents are not letting him watch television and and honestly i find this intervention to be a little hostile by the doctor It's normal when a client is resisting a therapist for the therapist to feel a little angry and to have an impulse to be aggressive or hostile back to the client for having hurt them or having frustrated them. And I think that this was uh, potentially an indication of that, that the doctor is upset that that this 17-year-old boy won't talk with them and is getting frustrated even though outwardly he doesn't appear to be. And as a way uh, as to try to get back at him, he tries to call him out on something and, and say, oh, you know, so which, which one of your parents never let, let you watch TV? The message is, I know you, kid. I, I know what you're about, and you can't hide from me. And again, I find this to be hostile. When people are hiding, I think we therapists should let them hide and give them reasons to be motivated to not hide. I think this is an old view of what therapy is or was, or and I think people still have this view of what therapy is. Like my student who thought I was going to out her on certain things. I was, I was going to dig things up that she didn't want dug up. Uh, this is an old view of therapy, and certainly there are therapists out there that operate like this today. But I would say that most therapists today don't don't operate like this. If if someone doesn't want to share something with a therapist, the therapist, at their best, doesn't try to get the person to reveal things that they don't want revealed. Therapy is a voluntary process, and so anyway, I thought this intervention was a little hostile and um, a little uncool. Okay, so then. Um, Later on in the movie, the doctor visits the parents, which is a good call. I found that this was um, actually a little uh, modern for the psychiatrist to be doing that. I think a lot of times, or at least my stereotype of psychiatrists in the early 70s would be that they wouldn't meet with the parents um, or they would consider the parents to be at least problematic. And, and later in the movie, he, he even says that. But, but he immediately visits the parents, which is a, a very um, family therapist thing to do. Um, and we find out that the mother says that Alan, the patient was a gentle boy who loved animals and never hurt anyone. So even though he gouged, um, the eyes out of seven or six different horses, um, this isn't, um, indicative of his behavior in other circumstances. So we also see that the mother is very pleasant, perhaps overly pleasant, and the father is grumpy, perhaps overly grumpy, and he's also very quiet. 
Um, Also, the mother appears to be a very devout Christian. The parents seem to be competing for their son. Uh, The parents also seem to be quietly angry at each other. Uh, At the end of the meeting with the parents, the mother suddenly breaks down crying and the father comforts her, which seemed like a a warm but um, strained moment for them. So then uh, we have the next scene where Alan, or not the next scene, but some scenes later, Alan arrives for his first official, official session with the doctor the next morning. Alan finds the doctor sleeping on his office couch. Um, so it looked as though the doctor had been sleeping there all night. And when Alan walks in, he wakes him up and this seemed odd to me. I I didn't know why it was in there, why, um, it's unclear as to why the doctor is sleeping in his office and not at home. Um, later on, they reveal that uh, the doctor doesn't have a very happy marriage, but, uh, maybe it has to do with that, but still for him to sleep on his office couch and not have an alarm clock to wake up before the client arrives seemed a little weird. Um, personally, I would have been mortified if a client walked in my office to find me sleeping, but the doctor doesn't seem to be phased by this at all. doesn't apologize or anything. Um, but anyway, let's just go to that session because I think it's uh, interesting. Do you dream often? Do you? It's my job to ask the questions, yours to answer them. Says who? Says me. You dream often? Do you? Now look, Alan. I'll answer if you answer. In turns. Very well. Only we have to speak the truth. Very well. So, you dream often? Yes. Do you? Yes. You had a special dream? No. Do you? Yes. What was your dream about last night? Can't remember. What's yours about? I said the truth. That is the truth. What's yours about? The special one. Carving up children. It's my turn. What is your first memory of a horse? I can't remember. You have no recollection of the first time you ever noticed a horse? Just told you. It's my turn. All right. You married? I am. Is she a doctor too? My turn. What is, uh... Peck? You shouted it out in your sleep last night. I thought perhaps you might like to talk about it. Flop, flop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Flop. Come on now, Alan, you can do better than that. So double your pleasure, double your fun. Get double everything rolled into one, one, one. All right, good morning. What do you mean? We finished for today. Only had five minutes. Too bad. Well, that's not fair. No? No. The government pays you 50 pounds an hour to see me. I know I heard downstairs. I'll go back downstairs and hear some more. It's not fair. You're a Swiss. Bloody Swiss! Swiss! Do I have to call nurse? She puts a finger on me and I'll bash her. She'll bash you a damn sight harder, I can assure you of that. On a beach. What? Where I first saw a horse. How old are you? How should I know? Six. What were you doing there? Digging. Sandcastles? Well, what else? So at this point, they have a flashback to when Alan was a child. He's five or six and he's on the beach. And uh, this this uh, man comes up to him on a horse. And Alan is fascinated with the horse. He's looking at the horse. And, and the man asks him if he wants to get on the horse. And the parents aren't around. They can't see. And uh, Alan gets on the horse and in front of the man. 
uh, and rides uh, with the men down the beach and Alan is, is, you know, fully enjoying it and he, he just loves this experience. So I'll just continue with the clip here. You can stroke him if you like. He won't mind. His name's Trojan. Easy there, Trojan. Easy boy. Easy there, Trojan. Oh, you can hardly reach from down there. You want to come up? I'll give you a lift up, okay? Don't be frightened, huh? Just hold on tight to his mane and grip with your knees. That's it. Come on now. Let's go. All you have to do is say, Come on, Trojan, bear me away. Say it, Bear me away. Hear you say it. Bear me away. Come on, What is my son doing up there? Thank you, not hurt, is he? Don't you think you should ask permission before doing a stupid thing like that? It's lovely, Dad. Boys, come down here. Please don't be hysterical. Don't you be larded down with me, young man. Come down here, Alan. You heard what your mother said. No. Come down here at once. No. Right this moment. No. I said this Get morning. Frank. Watch it. Are you mad? What's that? Do you want to terrify the horse? You're a public menace, do you know that? Easy, Trojan. How dare you pick up children and put them on dangerous animals? Dangerous? Frank, the boy's hurt. Of course, look at his eyes, they're rolling. They're yours. Frank, he's cut himself. The boy's hurt. I'm not, 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 I'm not. Okay, so I didn't play the whole clip. I edited it down to make it shorter and to take out the sections where there's no dialogue. So in this scene, we see the patient, Alan, being uncooperative with the doctor. If you could see the scene, you would see Alan acting very odd, making odd faces, sticking his head in drawers and other such odd behaviors. Um, When I first saw this movie earlier today, I thought Alan might have a developmental disability, autism or something. But I later found out that not to be the case. It turns out that he's just acting very strange at the beginning of the movie and later he doesn't act this way at all. So in the session, Alan refuses to answer any questions unless the doctor answers um, Alan's questions as well. Uh, I've experienced this before from teenagers who don't want to be in therapy. A lot of teens are that a lot of teens who come to therapy are are being forced by their parents. Um, Not all by any means, but, but a lot are teens who are forced into therapy hate being asked a bunch of questions. Partly, I suspect, because they're not used to being asked questions and they're not used to being listened to. Therefore, it's uncomfortable to be asked a bunch of questions. I guess they're probably also potentially afraid of being discovered and judged by me. I've spent a lot of my time trying to convince teens that it's not my job to judge them. I take a lot of pride in my ability to be cool with whatever I hear, so it can be a bit frustrating when teens treat me as if I'm going to yell at them for being who they are. So um, so I sort of understood the the doctor's frustration in this moment. But when you treat enough teens, you get, you get used to it for sure. I mean, I, I've had sessions where adolescents won't talk for the entire session and will just stare at me. Um, so, you know, you get used to that sort of thing um, pretty quick, particularly uh, when I was just starting out as a therapist and I was working at an agency and was getting a lot of teenagers who didn't want to be in therapy. I haven't any, had any clients like that in a long time because private practice tends not to um, get clients like that. Uh, actually, I don't think I have any teenagers currently. I mainly work with adults now. Anyway, so the doctor ends the session early because Alan is being uncooperative. So Alan, in turn, begins to comply with therapy because he wants the session to continue. 
So the doctor asks Alan about the first time Alan saw a horse. It's a good place to go, right? You know, Alan injured these horses. It's like, well, so Alan, tell me about the first time you interacted with a horse. You know, this was a good intervention, I thought. That prompts Alan to tell a long story about the first time he interacted with a horse. He was out at the beach with his parents. Um, His parents weren't watching at the moment. And he tells us, um, Alan uh, tells the story about, about a man and a horse who approached him on the beach while his parents weren't looking. The man is a very manly man with a deep voice in the scene. If if you see the movie, you see that he's just like, I don't know, he seems like he's straight out of a romance novel or something. The man puts Alan in front of him on the horse, and they gallop along the beach very quickly. And he tells Alan to, you know, scream out, bear me away, bear me away. And Alan is exhilarated. It also seems a bit sexual, but that could just be my interpretation of the scene. Actually, no, later um, Alan reveals that um, it was a quote-unquote sexy experience for him and a very powerful experience for him. So then when the man brings Alan back to where he was originally, his parents arrive and they yell at the man and the father pulls Alan off the horse and Alan falls down on the ground and hurts himself. And, uh, the guy on the horse, uh, gallops away. And the, and the mother is saying, Alan is hurt. Alan is hurt. And Alan cries. Um, I'm not hurt. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Alan is seemingly very upset at his parents for basically ruining the, you know, a very, um, wonderful moment for him. So a lot happens in this scene. Uh, On the horse, Alan seems to be freed from his repressed and unhappy parents. Alan seems to be equating the horse with freedom and passion. And again, as I said earlier, um, later Alan reveals that the horse ride was a quote-unquote sexy um, experience for him and, and a very powerful, passionate experience for him. Okay, so the therapist then visits the family home again. He also visits Alan's workplace, the horse stables, where the crime took place. He also visits the father at his work. I'm not sure if they did this in the screenplay to vary the settings in which the movie takes place, but just taking it on on its face value, um, this is not typical behavior for a therapist. Not because it's not helpful, but because it's impractical for the therapist to spend that much time visiting a client's home and workplace. But it makes me wonder if such visits might be helpful for treatment. I imagine that most therapists would scoff at the idea of visiting a client's home, but but why? Why would they scoff at that? In my earlier career, I used to do a fair amount of in-home therapy, and other therapists would scoff at me back then, and they still scoff at me for, for, for doing that. But... Um, I learned a tremendous amount by visiting clients' homes, and often the clients were much more at ease in their home than they were in my office. But there were drawbacks to in-home therapy as well. Um, For instance, it was more costly. They'd have to pay me to drive out there. And sometimes the sessions were interrupted by other people in the house or other such things, um, pets, that kind of thing. And therapy rarely had the necessary intensity that in-office therapy had. Certainly in-home therapy can be very intense, but I find that it's, it's a little harder to get into the necessary intensity of, of therapy that one can get in an office. Incidentally, today I received a call from a new client asking for an in-home intake for therapy, which is atypical. Just a just random little thought there. 
So anyway, in the film, the doctor learns that Alan grew up with a mother who exposed him to a lot of images and stories of Jesus's suffering. As a child, Alan had a poster over his bed showing a gruesome scene in which Jesus is being tortured by the masses. There's all these people clamoring for him, and there's this face of Jesus, and it just looks grotesque. It's awful. Um, but, um, to, to those outside of this sort of culture, it might seem like an awful thing to do to a child, but in my humble opinion, these, these parents are trying to do right by their children. Um, these parents consider it helpful to remind themselves about the suffering of Jesus so that they will not take life for granted and consequently do, do good in the world. And, um, they think that they want to help their children by reminding them that Jesus died for their sins and that, uh, the children should not take life for granted and, um, sh- should be good citizens of the world. And, uh, it's, it's not a bad message to give. And, and for a lot of kids, they cope well with it. Um, it doesn't, um, it isn't without its effects. I mean, you hear a lot of Catholics talking about Catholic guilt and the effects that that has on their life. So, um, you know, it's certainly worth looking at. But anyway, when I see things like this, I I don't automatically think that it's a bad thing. But for Alan, it seemed to be a bad thing for him. He didn't seem to take it well. And for any parents out there um, trying to figure out the right thing to do, the the most important thing really is just to gauge how children react to things. Every child is different, and every child consequently reacts differently to things, which is unfortunate because if they didn't, then we could write a book telling parents exactly how to parent. But uh, unfortunately, that, that isn't true. There are general things, of course, that, that might be helpful. I'm getting off topic. Let me get back to it anyway. Okay, so so getting back to the film regarding the poster on the wall, this seems to be where the damage occurred to Alan. His, his mother's piety and his father's resentment of it. I'm sure he knew that his parents were not on the same page regarding religion. Um, we later learned that the father secretly visits porn theaters and is deeply ashamed of it. Alan actually, um, on a lark, went with this girl um, that he was on a date with, Jill, to a porn theater just just as um, just to be silly. And uh, his father walked in, and uh, his father was uh, deeply ashamed of it. That and that happened the night that uh, Alan injured the horses. So Alan, I'm just going to spoil the entire movie, and then I'll get to the sessions in a second because it. it should be told is that as Alan is growing up and, it, and and he's becoming a teenager, he's starting to flog himself. He's starting to injure himself as he looks at um, this picture of a horse. He he takes down the the poster of Jesus suffering and puts up this picture of a horse. It's a kind of an eerie picture that's look you know a painting or a drawing of a horse that's looking at you. Alan begins to worship this picture of the horse. Calls it Equus and when no one's around, he worships this poster and hits himself. So things aren't going so well for Alan um, throughout his childhood. So then Alan gets a job at a at some at, at a horse stable or horse stables. I, I don't know how to say it, but he falls in love with one of the horses there, and I believe he calls it Equus. And there's a girl who works there, Jill. Jill is trying to date him, and and at night Alan would secretly take one of the horses out and ride it, um, and he would get naked with the horse and caress it, and then he would uh, ride the horse bareback. And um, incidentally, for those. Um, 
that uh, don't like this sort of thing or who who do like this sort of thing. There's a lot of penis in this movie. Um, there's a lot of Alan's penis in this movie. It's probably on screen, you know, a good 20 minutes of the movie, you know, and not like just suggested. It's, you know, it's fully there. So, you know, for the faint of heart or for those who might like that sort of thing, uh, you should know that. Uh, so he's riding the horse bareback and he's in ecstasy with this horse as he rides it and, and he's fully in the moment and he is happy and he seems to be free in the same way that he felt free when he was a child on the beach when the uh, man took him for a ride on the horse and they were running along the beach. These are the only moments that he seems to be truly happy. It all sounds very strange, and I suppose it is, but but somehow in the film it doesn't come across that way, at least to me. I, I suppose one interpretation of all this is that Alan is expressing sexual and romantic attraction to horses because his family had driven sexuality underground, which was you know typical of the time and still is in, in the States anyway. Alan was, was constantly told that Jesus was watching him, uh, watching him sin. So when he almost had sex with Jill, uh, the girl who worked at the stable. And when he felt ashamed for thinking about horses sexually, he gouged the eyes out of the horses because he felt the horses were watching him and condemning him. So backing up again a little. So the night of the crime, when he gouged out the eyes of the horses, he went on a date with Jill. They went to the porn theater upon her suggestion on a lark. And they you know, run into his dad and his dad's ashamed. And then um, they go back to the stable, up to, up, to, up to the attic of the stable, and they start having sex. And Alan can't stop thinking about Equus. He can't stop thinking about the horse. And he stops having sex, and he's very ashamed. And Jill's trying to comfort him, and he, he screams at her to go away. And then she leaves, and uh, Alan starts to have some kind of an episode. And he uh, is, is upset, and then he gouges out all the eyes of the horses that are in the stable. So, so one interpretation of all this is that because of the sexual and religious messages that were given to him by his, his mother and, and messages given to him by his father that, that sex is shameful and all these messages kind of swirled around in him, so to speak, and he's very confused and he's very, and he develops a lot of self-hatred and that this leads to this moment um, in which he has some kind of a, a, a breakdown and he uh, commits this crime on these horses. Um, it's interesting as I talk about it out loud here that um, I'm starting to like the film more and more. The first time I watched it, I didn't really like it. I thought, man, this you know this film's interesting on some level, but but I, I, I don't like it. It's not entertaining, and, and there's some pretty awful scenes in it. But the more I talk about it, it actually seems more interesting to me. Maybe I should rewatch it, and, and maybe I should give more stars to it on Netflix since I rated it so low. So anyway, in the middle of the film, there is a session in which the therapy seems to be progressing. Alan is talking more freely about his life prior to the crime. Alan hasn't revealed um, anything about the night of the crime yet to the doctor, like his failed sexual encounter with Jill or his seeing his father ashamed of going to the porn theater. But um, the doctor asks questions ab- about Jill, which is a sensitive topic for Alan. So, so Alan strikes back. Um, so let's just go to that session. Tell me, did you, uh, did you ever take her out? Did you have dates with her? What? Tell me if you did. Tell me! 
Tell me, tell me, tell me, on and on, standing there, nosy Parker. That's all you are, a bloody nosy Parker, just like my dad. Answer this, answer that, never stop. Well, I'm sorry. All right. Well, now it's my turn. You tell me, answer me. We're not playing that game now. We're playing what I say. All right. What do you want to know? Do you have dates? I told you I'm married. I know. Her name's Margaret. She's a dentist. You see, I found out. What made you go with her, then? Did you used to bite her hands when she did you in the chair? That's not very funny. Do you have girls behind her back? No. Then what? Do you fuck her? All right. Come on, tell me, now. tell me, tell me. That's enough now. I bet you don't. I bet you never touch her. You've got no kids, have you? Is that because you don't fuck? Go to your room. So in that moment, Alan gets under the doctor's skin. Um, you can see it in the film that the doctor has moved, and you actually know at that point that he, the doctor hasn't had any physical intimacy. I don't think he's even kissed his wife in several years. Um, there are some scenes with his wife that indicate that. Alan has has managed to find the doctor's Achilles heel in terms of his own personal life. And at that point, the doctor is... Um, hurt and angry and doesn't know what to do. Uh, This seems to be maybe the turning point in their relationship where um, I think it becomes quite complicated and um, the doctor seemingly has a significant amount of hostility towards Alan. Um, At the same time, the doctor seems to have compassion. So things get, get pretty complicated. So then later in the movie, we see another session between the doctor and Alan and I think some of this hostility, this cool hostility on behalf of the doctor starts to come through in an intervention, and unless the doctor always does this intervention. But anyway, Alan seems to be resisting again, and the doctor says, let's play a game. And it all seems very innocent at first. I th- and when I first saw the movie, I thought, oh, a game, that sounds nice. You know, hang out with Alan, put him at ease, stop, stop having so much animosity between the two of them. Uh, therapy with teens doesn't have to be all cold and dry and intellectual. You can have a good time. But it turns out that the doctor was tricking Alan into allowing the doctor to hypnotize him. Um, hypnotherapy is a controversial topic in in the psychotherapeutic field, but so you know I'm not going to go into the details of it. But um, the way they portray uh, hypnotherapy in this film is sort of in the classical sense, you know, where you do some sort of repeated stimulus that, um, and you, you speak uh, a certain way to the client and, um, then they slip into a trance and then you can do whatever you want to, to them, even erase memory. Uh, so, so the doctor puts him into this, this hypnotic state. And then for the first time, Alan reveals his secret love affair with Equus, the horse, and how he takes the horse out at night and gets naked with it and rides around the field in, in ecstasy. Say a supervisee told me that they did this with, with a client, I would be extremely concerned. To to hypnotize or to do anything to a client without uh, informing the client of what you're doing and allowing them to, to make the decision as to whether or not they want to do that is completely unethical. Therapists should not trick their clients. There are certain kinds of therapy, strategic and brief therapies that will use trickery. And it's, you know, it's always um, a little dubious to do so. But the other thing is, is, is the, the whole of, uh, event and the events surrounding the injuring of the horses is obviously traumatic for Alan. 
And when it comes to trauma with, with clients, we don't want to stick people's noses in their own trauma. We don't, you know, a common belief that I've heard people say is, is in order to get over something, you just have to be, you have to just rip off the bandaid, so to speak very fast. And certainly that metaphor fits in, in some situations in life. But when it comes to trauma, often when you rip off the bandaid, you end up um, re-traumatizing people and adding to the wound. And, and I've seen this with, with many, many, many clients where when clients move too, too quickly, either because the therapist is moving too quickly or the client is moving too quickly, then bad things happen. Clients become agitated. Their distress goes beyond the threshold of tolerance. And they're, again, re-abused. And they're just adding to their problems and making matters worse. And their symptoms might even get worse. And, and, um, and it's not therapeutic. It's counter-therapeutic. And so here the doctor is, is he's hypnotizing his, his client without his client's consent. He is then making the client relive elements regarding the trauma. And the client is obviously in distress um, while the client is reminiscing about the horse and, and whatnot. And this happens later in the movie too. He starts acting it out in the office. Um, for instance, when he gets naked, he like takes his clothes off in the session. You know, so there's just all sorts of questionable things. Now, you know, am I open to the idea that atypical therapies, if, if they're helpful, then they're okay? Yeah, I'm okay with that. But again, if a supervisee told me that they did this, uh, we would have to have a very, very long talk. So let's just go to that session. Would you like to play a game? What kind? It's one I invented myself. It's called Blink. You fix your eyes on something. Say that little stain on the wall over there, and I tap my pencil on the desk. First tab, you close your eyes. The second, open. Close, open, close, open, till I say stop. What's the point of that? Well, relax you. Make it easier for you to talk. Stupid. You don't have to if you don't want to. Didn't say I didn't want to. Well? Don't mind. All right. Start watching that stain. Uh, put your hands by your sides, your fingers open wide. The thing to do is to feel comfortable and relax. Absolutely. You watching that stain? Now try and make your mind as blank as possible. That's not difficult. Uh. No more talking. First step, close. Second, open. Ready? Now I want you to think back in time. You're on that beach you told me about. You're six. Above you, staring down at you is that great horse's head. Can you see that? Yes. You ask him a question. Does the chain hurt? Yes. Do you ask him aloud? No. And what does the horse say back? Yes. What do you say? I'll take it out for you. And he says? It never comes out. They have me in chains. Like Jesus? Yes. Only his name's not Jesus, is it? No. What is it? It's Equus. Equus. Does he live in all horses or just some? All. Good. Now you leave the beach. You're in your bedroom at home. You're 12 years old. You're looking at Equus from the foot of the bed. Now tell me, why is Equus in chains? For the sins of the world. What does he say to you? I see you. I will save you. How? Bear you away. Two shall be one. 
horse and rider shall be one beast? One person. And my chinkle chankle shall be in thy hand. Chinkle chankle, that's his mouth chain. Yes. Now tell me, what is the stable? His temple? His holy of holies? Yes. Will you wash him? And tend him? And brush him with many brushes? Yes. And there he spoke to you, didn't he? He looked at you with his gentle eyes. And he spake unto you. Yes. What did he say? Ride me, mount me, and ride me forth at night? Yes. And you obeyed? Yes. How did you learn? By watching others? Yes. Must have been difficult. You bounced about? Yes. But he taught you, didn't he? Equus showed you the way. No. He didn't? He showed me nothing. He's a mean bugger. Ride or fall, that's straw law. Straw law? He was born in the straw, and this is his law. But, but you managed... You mastered him. Had to. And so you rode forth in secret? Yes. How often? Every three weeks. More people would notice. On a particular horse? No. Well, let's do it. Let's go riding. Now. You're there now. In front of the stable door. Go and open it. Now go in. Hush, quietly now. Dalton may still be awake. Quietly as possible. That's a good boy. Are you in yet? So then we have another flashback where Alan is in a field. He, he's leading a horse into a field in the middle of the night secretly. And um, Alan gets naked and caresses the horse and brushes the horse and worships the horse and then gets on the horse and, and rides the horse around naked in, in this field. And uh, so let's just go to that clip. Oh, down. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Equus the Godslave, faithful and true. That's it. He's good. He's good. He's good. Equus. Son of Flequus. Son of Nequus. Walk. Here we go. The king rides out on Equus, mightiest of horses. Only I can ride him. His neck comes out of my body. It lifts in the dark. Equus, God's slave, now the king commands you. Tonight we ride against them all. The hosts of Bola, the hosts of Jodpa, all those who show you off for their vanity. Tie rosettes on your head for their vanity. Come on, Equus, let's get them. Trot. Steady, 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 steady. That's it. Steady, steady. Cowboys are watching, taking off their stetsons. They know who we are. They're admiring us, bowing low onto us. Come on now, show them. Cancer, cancer. And Equus the Mighty rose against all. His enemies scatter. His enemies fall. Turn. Trample them, trample them, trample them. Turn. Trample them, trample them, trample them. Turn. Turn, 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 turn. Turn, turn! I'm stiff, stiff in the wind. My mane, stiff in the wind. I'm raw, I'm raw. Do you feel my raw? Feel me on you, on you, on you. I want to be inside you. I want to be inside you and be you forever. One person. I love you. Bear me away. Oh, make us now. Oh, one person. Oh, one person. Oh, one person. Ah! 
Okay, I'm officially weirded out again by this movie. Um, I, for, <laughs> I forgot about how weird that scene is. Um, so, so again, I think if you're watching the film and you're in a certain mindset, this this scene um, is is quite uh, compelling and um, moving and unique. So, again, just to recap, the the therapist uh, um, without the client's consent induces a trance in the client. And, uh, the client ends up reliving this, this particular night with this, with this one particular horse in which he gets naked and, and rides around in this field and, um, has this ecstasy moment. All right. So later in the film, there's a scene where the mother is in the hospital and she's visiting Alan and she gets into a physical altercation with Alan and the doctor arrives and drags her physically out of the hospital and they start to have a conversation. So let's just go to that clip. Can't you see the boy's highly distressed? Really? Yes, he's at the most delicate state of treatment. He's totally exposed, ashamed, everything you can imagine. And me? What about me? What do you think I am? I'm a parent, of course, that doesn't count. That's a dirty word in here, isn't it, parent? Now, you know that's not true. No, I know it. I know it all right. I've heard it all my life. It's our fault. Whatever happens, we did it. You come to us and say, who forbids television? Who does what behind whose back? As if we're criminals. Well, let me tell you something. We're not criminals. We've done nothing wrong. We loved Alan. We gave him the best love we could. No, Doctor. Whatever has happened, has happened because of Alan. If you added up everything we ever did to him, from his first day on earth to this, you wouldn't find out why he did this... A terrible thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to understand. Because I lie awake and awake thinking it out. And I want you to know that I deny it absolutely what he's doing now. Staring at me. Attacking me for what he's done. For what he, he is. Strength. You have your words and I have mine. But if you knew God, Doctor, you wouldn't know about the devil. The devil isn't made by what Mummy says or what Daddy says. The devil is there. It's an old-fashioned word, but a true thing. What I did just now was inexcusable. I only know that he was my little Alan, and then the devil came. So the only thing I have to say about this scene is... That often, um, and I guess maybe more so in the past, therapists blame parents in a way that is alienating to them and perhaps unfair. Um, I would say often unfair. When I talk with students and supervisees about their work with families, I will often ask them if they tend to find themselves siding more with parents or more with kids. Part of being a therapist is having the dilemma between not taking sides, between being very neutral as possible, if that's ever possible, and taking sides with people when it's appropriate or taking all sides with all people. These are philosophical ideas that are difficult to describe succinctly, but anyway, when I talk with people about it, uh, I often find that uh, you're either you're, you, there's two types of therapists. You're either the type of therapist that often finds yourself siding with parents. Um, you know, you often find yourself thinking 
Oh, if that kid would only follow the rules, doesn't he understand how hard the mother and father are working? Or you're uh, you're the type of therapist who often sides with children, uh, where you see child defiance as a natural reaction to bad parenting, to parents that are overly strict or overly neglecting or something along these lines. And certainly both of these perspectives are are often true, if not at the same time in the same family. But um, I find for myself that when I side in this way, in one of those two ways, that um, it's hard to be very therapeutic. It's hard to develop relationships with the side that you're against. And, and again, I could go on and on about this. It's, it's not as cut and dry as what I'm describing it. But in this scene, uh, the mother is expressing her frustration about being blamed. Um, she hasn't been explicitly blamed, but, you know, in some way she has been implicitly blamed. And she's not necessarily included very directly in the treatment of Alan. Uh, as I was saying earlier, certainly the doctor is taking a holistic approach to some extent when it comes to Alan's treatment. But family therapists like myself would consider it important to listen to the mom and to try to treat the entire family in addition to Alan's individual issues, so to speak, um, to conceptualize Alan's issue within the family context and within the cultural context. But this is a rare perspective. Um, It's becoming more prevalent lately. But when this movie was made in uh, the early 70s and when it was written perhaps in the late 60s, certainly this was uh, the case in which... um, People's pathologies were seen to exist from within the person and that you needed to treat just the individual and that parents were actually counterproductive to the therapy. A lot of early uh, therapy treatment plans actually involved cutting the individual off from their family. And um, what a lot of family therapists found was that you could do that and actually achieve some success in the uh, immediate moment. But when the person is returned to their context, their symptoms resurfaced. And so a, a family therapy grew out of that observation to some extent. So anyway, getting back to the film, the, the film ends with a final session bet- with the doctor and Alan in which Alan, uh, in which the doctor actually tricks Alan into believing that he is taking a truth drug. He gives him an aspirin and says that it's a drug that makes people tell the truth. And then Alan tells a story about the night that he injured all the horses, the night in which he went on a date with Jill to the porn theater and saw his dad and his dad was very ashamed and the night that he and Jill tried to have sex and um, Alan kept uh, seeing the horse and when he closed his eyes when he was with Jill he he could see the horse staring at him and, and making it so that he couldn't um, have pleasure with, with Jill and he actually, Alan wanted to have contact with the horse and not with Jill and then he rejects Jill, and Jill's trying to be nice. She runs away, and then that's when uh, Alan um, injures all the horses. And incidentally, it's a very gruesome scene. I couldn't even watch it, honestly. And I, I've seen a lot of really graphic imagery in movies, and uh, uh, this one I, I couldn't watch. There's something about innocent animals being injured that is not tolerable to me. 
And then Alan starts to have some kind of somatic episode where he's on the ground and he seems to be choking on his own tongue or something. And the doctor is on top of him actually uh, prying his mouth open and, and telling him to breathe. And, and then the doctor gives him some sort of shot that's, that's a sedative of some sort. And then the movie concludes with the doctor giving a monologue, which is sprinkled throughout the movie. So again, the treatment is presented as if it's successful, that by tricking a client into telling uh, the story of the trauma, that that is what's needed. You know, it's an old model of treating trauma. Um, it's, it's a model that's, that suggests that in order to get over a trauma, you must talk about it and that you have to let it out in an explosive, cathartic expression. Um, that's, that's what will cure people. And certainly I can imagine that that would be true for some people with their particular issue. But research has shown, and certainly anecdotal evidence with me uh, has shown that uh, trauma needs to be dealt with very carefully. And people have to move very slowly into the material. They can't just uh, rip the Band-Aid off, as I was saying earlier. And... Uh, Clearly, this was a very distressing moment in this session for Alan. If I were to make a, a prediction based on this data, if, if the doctor was consulting with me, I would say, um, you just set Alan back, you know, miles, that now he has to process the trauma that you put him through in this session before he can begin to work on the trauma that um, happened to him prior to you working with him. And since you've now tricked him twice and, and harmed him in therapy, he might not ever even trust therapist again. In fact, he might even act like he's getting better just to get you off his back. Uh, I don't know if I'd put it in those words, but um, certainly that's what I'd be thinking. I'd also be thinking it's possible that this is exactly what Alan needed and that the doctor did wonderful work with him. Um, you know, there's just no way to know until you see what happens with people. So I just wanted to end with a clip of the doctor talking. Um, basically, it's an it's interesting um, idea uh, that the writer is putting forth and, and that uh, I think what he's saying is that psychiatry or psychology eliminates the uniqueness in people and gets rid of the passion in people. It, that uh, therapist's job is to eliminate individuality and to make people conformists. Um, I, I certainly don't agree with this. It really doesn't make any sense. Um, certainly, um, with some clients, uh, this could be true. You know, for instance, you have someone who's very creative and occasionally problematic socially, but but not in a immoral sense or a harmful sense to other people. But um, maybe you know he's a painter, but he's also a little bit bizarre, can't hold down a job, uh, this sort of thing. Not not a harm to society or himself. And he is drugged, and uh, it eliminates his creativity. But his mood swings are attenuated. We would say, well, he, he has to lose his creativity along with um, some of his issues, making him a, a, a very boring, normal American. You know, certainly, you know, that, that can happen sometimes. But the idea that therapy in general makes people conformist is, is just not true. Um, I, I've certainly worked with a lot of clients who their level of conformity doesn't change with therapy. 
Um, therapy is supposed to, you know, at its best, help people to become who they want to be and to actually broaden their expression, to broaden their horizons, to broaden the options available to them, uh, to increase their creativity. So I, I don't agree with this with this message at all. But, you know, it's a compelling, poetic film and, and it's a cynical and powerful ending. So I thought I'd play a little bit of it. I'll take it away. What then? He'd feel himself acceptable. What then? Do you think feelings like his can be simply reattached, like plasters stuck on other objects we select? I mean, look at him. My desire might be to make of this boy an ardent husband, a caring citizen, a worshipper of abstract and unifying God. My achievement, however, is more likely to make a ghost. I'll heal the rash on his body. I'll erase the welts cut into his mind by flying manes. And when that's done, I'll put him on a metal scooter and send him puttering off into the concrete world and he'll never touch hide again. Hopefully, he feel nothing at his fork but approved flesh. I doubt, however, with much passion. Passion, you see, can be destroyed by a doctor. It cannot be created. You won't gallop anymore, Alan. Horses will be quite safe. You'll save your money every week and change that scooter for a car and spend glorious weekends grooming that. You'll pop round to the betting shop and put the odd 50 pence on the nags, quite forgetting that they ever meant anything more to you than bearers of little profits and little losses. You will, however, be without pain, almost completely without Pain. And now, for me, it never stops. The voice of Equus out of the cave. Why me? Why me? All right. Um, so, aside from the obvious questionable therapeutic techniques, the doctor performed on Alan. I think there are a lot of useful messages that the film provides for therapists. Perhaps the most compelling of which is that the doctor is deeply moved and troubled Alan's material and his work in therapy. That throughout the film, the doctor is plagued with his own shortcomings and his own regrets. His his work with Alan, trying to help Alan to become normal, so to speak, makes the doctor uh, question how pathologically normal the doctor is. Uh, the doctor laments not having the passion that Alan has. And even though Alan's passion is problematic and criminal at times, at least he has passion. The film shows that the doctor is vulnerable to Alan's attacks. I'm just taking a guess and saying that in the mid-70s, this was a novel concept that a therapist could be so affected by a client. Therapists are often seen, even today, as being immune to harm from, from their clients. They're professionals. They're supposed to be able to handle these things, but they're human beings. And even though they have training and uh, support that is uh, presumably supposed to help them cope with these situations, they are always affected by these situations. 
any hostility is is going to have an effect on someone. Any kind of hurtfulness is is going to hurt. And um, this film, in a very sensitive and accurate way, portrays that. I thought the film did a good job by portraying the confusing nature of the cause of this sort of behavior. You know, often in our society and in film, we provide very simple causes for odd behavior. But this film, at least to me, doesn't really provide a clear answer as to why Alan gouged the eyes out of of these horses. I think uh, there's a lot of potential for people to project onto it. If you are anti-religion, I guess it would... Um, this film would be grist for that mill. If you thought that sexuality was a problem in people's lives, often you might see the father's sexuality and Alan's sexuality as a, uh, a cause for for why Alan did what he did. So again, as I said before, this film was not enjoyable for me to watch the first time. It was a little interesting in the beginning and then toward the, the latter half. I just thought, eh. But after thinking about it and watching these clips again, I, I can actually see why people consider this film and this play to be a classic, a modern classic. And incidentally, I think I just saw on the internet that Daniel Ratcliffe, I think is his name, uh, Harry Potter, the guy who plays Harry Potter in the movies, played Alan in a recent stage production, um, getting naked and, and all that uh, stuff. So it's a popular enough play to attract a star like that to play one of the lead roles. All right, so that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself. And please go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, and click on stuff, see what's up, go to the links, go to the uh, Support Us page and support us. Like us on Facebook, but, uh, you know, if you don't, I'll still like you anyway. (laughs) Okay, bye.